This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to the Triple Vision podcast, your window into the past, present, and future of blindness in Canada. This podcast has been made possible by a generous contribution from T-Base Communications and the support of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. The mission of Triple Vision is to gather and document previously untold Canadian blindness narratives, one lived experience at a time, and to make our history accessible and universally known. Hello and welcome to Triple Vision. I'm David Best, bringing you the Triple Vision podcast. We have completed our exploration of the history of education in Canada. Now we're shifting our focus to employment. So Peter and Hannah, what have you got for us to start off with today? So today we're going to be exploring the history of employment, going back to the earlier days of uh, people who are blind and visually impaired and people who have disabilities in general by talking with Jeffrey Realm, uh, and he'll introduce himself on the podcast, uh, who will be talking about sheltered workshops, and Kathy Stukenberg, who will be talking about her employment with CNIB's Cater Plan operation. Hannah, what do you know about sheltered workshops? Well, Peter, my first experience with them was when I was 14. Actually, I had a summer job there. And um, typically, the sheltered workshops for the blind were run by the CNIB and they got contracts for like lots of manual labor type jobs and packaging tea was something I did in my summer job. And I know they, they made rakes. There were broom and brush making factories as well. And um, so lots of uh, manual type work and people were typically paid piecemeal for their work. It wasn't a minimum wage situation either. So typically most people use the workshops as a way to earn the $100 a month they were allowed to, to earn above their monthly pensions from the government. So it was a way to augment their living, but it wasn't a career path by any stretch. So Yeah, so we're going to hear Jeffrey talk about that, the good and the not so good of um sheltered workshops. And then Kathy will be on talking about Cater Plan. Cater Plan started in 1928 with kiosks uh, that a number of blind individuals, usually veterans, worked at. Eventually that grew into a $44 million operation into the 1980s. And then um, by the 2000s had disappeared uh, completely as CNIB moved out of the business. At one point, the operation employed 750 blind individuals across the country, but mostly in the type of stand that uh, Kathy managed. Um, they had um, cafeterias and other food operations, which were much larger. And interestingly enough, these employed about 2,100 sighted individuals, maybe some blind people as well, but mostly sighted individuals. So let's have a listen to what uh, Jeffrey has to say for us this morning. Today we're starting a series on employment, and I'm happy to introduce our collaborator here on Triple Vision and the Pandora Project, Assistant Professor Jeffrey Rayom, York University. Jeffrey, can I get you to introduce yourself, please? My name is Jeffrey Rayom, and uh, I teach in the Critical Disability Studies program at York University on uh, mad people's history and disability history, and I'm very happy to discuss uh, aspects of this history as uh, we're going to be discussing today. 
Yeah. So when we think of employment, Jeffrey, I want to go back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution because things mm -hmm. changed at the yeah. beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Prior to that, people who were blind and, and, and visually impaired or people mm -hmm. who had disabilities occupied a different place in society. And the Industrial mm -hmm. Revolution changed that. How, how, did they, how did it change that? Yes, very much so. Well, people with uh, disabilities, physical, sensory, and, and intellectual or mental disabilities, um, were very much uh, often in integrated into the work, work field, into um, employment, uh, as we would call it today. People were very much worked in household economies, um, in, in small artisanal workshops, in pre-industrial economies. But with the industrial, and, and it was very common, by the way, too, of course, uh, speaking of pe people with sensory disabilities, eye disabilities were very common. Um, people would acquire uh, inf eye infections, and I would have visual impairments, for example, or other sort, certain types of acquired disabilities. And then while they may not have done the same types of work they did, at one point, they would be found. Uh, other works would would be found for them in in household economies, in agricultural work, for example, um, in agrarian economies, um, where people uh, did different types of of labor, and so they weren't just discarded uh, to the extent that often uh, happened once the industrial revolution had occurred, because people needed to uh, continue to be involved in. Um, basically surviving in some way and helping other members of their household or local community to survive. And remember, in the pre-industrial economies too, most people didn't go beyond their own village. We, we, the concept mm -hmm. of traveling is a, a modern concept of the last few hundred years, especially of the middle class and the upper class, and of the last uh, 60 or 70 years of, of more um, broadly um, Based classes in the Western world, but in in, in pre-industrial uh, economies, most people didn't travel far beyond their own community in their whole, throughout their whole lives, except for those who might have been, for example, in the military. So, with the arrival of of industrial economy and increasing urbanization in the 18th century, with the industrial revolution and then the agrarian revolution, um, there was huge changes to uh, where people worked and how they worked and who worked. Very important, isn't it? So um, where they worked, more and more people gravitated to uh, larger scale firms, industrially produced goods and manufacturers um, in urban centers uh, further away from um, agrarian um, backgrounds and uh, more people moved off the farm so that in 1851, for the first time in in recorded history, uh, the um, United Kingdom reg re registered in their census the majority of people lived in cities. That had never happened before. The vast majority of people always lived in, in farms. I'm sure all of uh, everybody listening here, and certainly in my case, all of our ancestors were primarily farmers. So, so many mm -hmm. people started moving to urban centers because that's where more jobs were, that uh, the cities grew greater and greater from the um, late mid to late 19th century on um, and uh, more factories began, began being established there and in the industrial system in which speed up and productivity were measured 
um, much more precisely as as the decades wore on, especially with the advent of the assembly line in the early 20th century at Ford Motor Company by Henry Ford um, in particular, um, and was replicated elsewhere, more and more people with disabilities were not employed. Um, right. They, they, they dropped out of the economy, right? So you had this, as you say, That's this right. huge influx into cities, mm-hmm. factories, and all of a sudden there was no means to employ these people. Um, right. Because I guess, especially if you were blind or partially sighted, the way the mm-hmm. factories and the assembly lines and so on were constructed, um, if, if you couldn't see, there was just no place for you there. Exactly. And they, they were, in many cases, forced out of, of work. Um, people who had previously done skilled artisanal work um, as people with disabilities, whether they were blind or um, physically disabled um, or had sensory disabilities, lost jobs because they were no longer seen as, quote, productive as compared to able-bodied people. And of course, many people in industrial jobs ended up becoming disabled because of the um, harsh mm. conditions um, on those jobs. So many disabled workers were developed through the industrial system, of course. But as a result, so many people lost jobs. More and more people with disabilities were out of work, as you mentioned, Peter, by the late 19th century. And their bodies were and minds, in often cases, were seen as expendable and and no longer um, profitable to the developing capitalist economic system during this period. And so sheltered workshops eventually developed. Now, sheltered workshops have a long history, um, if we think of it, going all the way back to um, 17th century France under uh, uh, under um, Louis the Sixth. Sorry, Louis the Fourteenth. <laughs> under Louis the Fourteenth, there were sheltered workshops even earlier under Louis the Thirteenth. Um, Saint Vincent de Paul started developing them, um, but these were sort of hit and miss affairs. They were for Poor and disabled people um, who were um, employed in, in, in very menial tasks in, um, in a largely pre-industrial economy. It was really with the industrial economy that um, large numbers of people uh, in um, the industrial world were employed uh, with uh, in, in sheltered workshops beginning in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, Goodwill Industries, for example, in Boston mm-hmm. was founded by... Um, a philanthropist and uh, spread throughout different parts of North America well into the 20th century. Um, so that by the mid 20th century, there were large numbers of sheltered workshops established for, for people with physical, mental, and sensory disabilities. And people who were blind were especially put to work doing jobs that they were seen as more capable of, of doing um, a, a, in regard to tactile work. Right. So this is this is the kind of shelter workshop that we saw in the early days, or mm-hmm. of CNIB, for example, exactly. where people were making brushes and, and right. um, brooms and um, mm-hmm. and caning and so on. Right. Yes. And that's it was right. thought that this was this was product this would be productive work for them mm-hmm. uh, because it was tactile. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Exactly. And of course, um, it was very exploitative exploitative work as well where they were paid very poorly and were very, very much um, uh, not valued as laborers in themselves uh, during this period. And so people with disabilities, blind people, um, people with physical and mental disabilities, 
uh, where, 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 whose work had previously been integrated um, into uh, pre-industrial economies, much more so, were more and more segregated as the Industrial Revolution speeded up productivity, and they were considered less um, capable of contributing the economy, even though, of course, this is in many cases certainly not true. Um, but the idea was that um, it also fitted in with the idea of work as rehabilitation, which began to mm. uh, began to be promoted during this period. Um, that uh, if an, an individual was disabled, the way in which mm -hmm. they could contribute, quote unquote, to the uh, economy was by getting them to do some sort of menial tasks um, to keep them occupied and to produce certain types of labor that were considered useful for uh, for um, a small scale industry, gen generally speaking. Mm -hmm. um, this has included such things as sorting rags. You mentioned about broom making, putting um, different things into boxes or, or bags, sorting mm -hmm. different small um, products for manufacturers to to um, produce um, a, a, or who dropped off products at, at particular places um, for people to work on. Uh, and um, and then would you, they would also ha, ha, um, charge the sh sheltered workshop at a very low rate so that mm -hmm. people were not um, employed um, in some cases at all well. Um, in most cases, not at all well. They got very poor wages, if at all. Um, and so, for example, people were, because they were considered by the uh, early to mid-20th century in, in rehabilitation, and by the, the latter part of the 20th century, including more recent decades, it was considered uh, being exempt from minimum wage laws in places like Ontario. Mm -hmm. uh, it was legal to not pay people with disabilities well below the minimum wage. Um, and there were people with disabilities who protested this. Mm -hmm. um, as early as uh, 1939, there was a group of blind workers in Londonderry, um, Northern Ireland, who... Um, who protested the, the very poor wages that they were paid and the terrible working conditions that they endured um, in a workshop. And in fact, they even though they were blind, they were made to work in a building which was very poor condition in the basement. So it was they had to go downstairs and upstairs, so it was not even physically mm -hmm. accessible for blind mm -hmm. workers, let alone good working conditions for anybody. Um, they had water running down the walls. It was very unhygienic. They they ended up having a protest march through Londonderry, but unfortunately, they didn't get an improvement in their conditions. And they, this this particular workshop, which they protested about, uh, continued to operate for the next uh, twenty hmm. or thirty, twenty to thirty so when, uh, years. Yeah. So when did things start to change, and how did things start to change? Was is response to protests like that or was there simply a growing awareness that this was really not appropriate to keep doing this to people with disabilities what kind of led to that change and when did that start to occur it was after a second world war where there was more emphasis on employing people of course many of the people who were employed including the by the way the londonderry workers who were protesting many of them were veterans and so there was also an emphasis on getting proper employment for disabled veterans. But this percolated also to people who were not veterans, disabled civilians who had never served in the armed forces, who also had uh, argued for their citizenship rights. And by the 1960s, with the large-scale 
increase in deinstitutionalization, 1960s and 70s, especially by the 1970s, with larger numbers of people being deinstitutionalized from um, mental institutions or institutions for people with disabilities, more and more sheltered workshops were set up um, in places like Ontario and, and elsewhere, um, so that uh, there were were a very high awareness of, of these facilities, whereas in Ontario in the early 1970s, for example, um, the... Um, wage weight was extraordinarily low. There was one person in particular, Christina Kazuba, who was worked at a sheltered workshop in Toronto for the Salvation, which was run by the Salvation Army, and she protested uh, being paid below the minimum wage. Had she been employed at the minimum wage, her salary would have increased 83%, was what wow. her lawyer calculated. And this, this wow. she protested, but she lost the protest. Uh, she brought it, it was brought by some advocacy lawyers uh, to the Ontario Labor Relations Board, but it was again deemed that because she was in rehabilitation, therefore she wasn't entitled to appropriate wages. And so the argument of people who, who ran a lot of these workshops was, well, this isn't real work. It was uh, mm-hmm. just um, short-term empl- employment, and it was they weren't under the same pressure as, say, somebody in a factory. Of mm-hmm. course, this has often been proven not to be accurate, that right. many of these, the people, these people did this all their lives. It wasn't short term. That's right. It wasn't short term. Exactly. Um, I, I, I myself worked in a sheltered workshop for a, a little over a year when I was 18 and 19, the Goodwill Industries in Windsor, Ontario. And I knew a man, and this is 1981, who had been there. His name was um, Bill. And Bill had worked there. He was a person with a developmental disability. And he had worked there since 1965. So, and... Uh, People were paid extremely low uh, in those places. Um, many of us even just got our what would be the equivalent ODSP now. It's called family benefits at that time. But in any case, the point was that people spent decades often in these mm-hmm. places so that the rehabilitation <laughs> never ended. More and more people by the 80s were protesting it. Advocacy lawyers in different parts of North America and other parts of the world were protesting what was going on, complaining that this system of uh, employing people with disabilities for such a low wages in, in segregated workshop it was very exploitative and was against the minimum wage laws. And so there were a lot of protests about this. Are there still sheltered workshops today? Uh, yes, there are still some sheltered workshops um, around. They're called other like ADP programs, um, there are different places where people work in sheltered employment, uh, as it's often referred to, people with developmental disabilities and, and people in, with a number of other disabilities also. In today's economy, do they mm-hmm. serve a useful purpose at all? And I don't mean useful purpose for the, the, mm-hmm. the um, companies that might be benefiting from this, but do they serve a useful purpose at all for the people who are employed there? Yes, that's a good point. Um, people First would argue, People First, which is a group of activists and um, for people with intellectual disabilities, has had a campaign the last few years against sheltered workshops, pointing out how exploitative they are. And they would argue, no, that they don't serve a useful purpose for people with disabilities, specifically people with intellectual disabilities who often are employed in them, but or any other disabled person, that they're not appropriate for people to be paid at such low uh, wage rates and and to be segregated in facilities. I have heard some people say, well, it is important some people find acceptance at some facilities, 
where they worked, where they wouldn't in other employments, where they would be discriminated against be, because of their visible disability. But in that case, it's um, uh, uh, the argument can also be brought back to it's also a way of saying, well, because there's discrimination, therefore someone should be segregated into sheltered work where they are not discriminated against as a person with disability verbally, but discriminated against financially uh, because they get lower paid. And also it takes mm -hmm. away the responsibility of individuals who are not disabled from not being discriminatory and to mm -hmm. ensure that anti-discriminatory laws and policies, which are in place, after all, it is a charter right not to be discriminated against. So, Jeffrey, would you say that the problem is not with the individual, but the problem is how work is structured? So if we, if we take what we've talked about so far, all the way back to basically the 17th, 18th, 19th century, when you know, the Industrial Revolution started to come along, the, pro the problem wasn't the individual. The problem was that the way the work was structured. And mm. are we still in this sort of situation that no matter what economy has come along since, that it's been a problem that the, the economies themselves haven't allowed people with disabilities to thrive and be productive because of the way it's structured rather than the competencies of the people themselves. Yes, I think that's a very good analysis of how the way in which product we we use this all the time are, are, is so and so productive as if product. It also got to question the whole notion of productivity too. Supreme irony of all of this: huge numbers of supreme uh, of disabled people rather were employed in institutions uh, for as uh, exploited labor and and where they were confined and did huge amounts of work in these institutions. Mm. They were productive. They, they did huge amounts of work. Women, for example, did huge amounts of work in the laundry, uh, being exploited as laundry workers or doing the sewing and knitting in the asylum. The um, men did huge amounts of maintenance work, for example. So uh, the supreme irony is a lot of this is, is has been shown by uh, historians who've done research on this topic, how inaccurate these ideas were. First of all, even when you look at the 19th and early 20th century, before the institutionalization, these are just completely fallacious ideas. So when we think of the the, the fact is, is that disabled people have been discriminated against because of their physical sensory or, or mental difference uh, based on prejudices in society that have been very detrimental to their to disabled people's inclusion in um, not only the workforce, but in society more generally. And that, that has been an, a major area of, of criticism from many disabled activists over the years. Well, Jeffrey, I want to thank you very much for starting us off on this journey on employment. We have taken a difficult question this morning and pulled it apart. And we've gone through about 100 years of history in this short time. So thanks very much for getting us started on this road. With us is Kathy Stukenberg, and we're talking to Kathy today because she was employed through a program with the CNIB called Cater Plan. And Kathy, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners and uh, your work at Cater Plan? I'm Kathy Stukenberg, like you said, and I live in Vancouver. I worked at Cater Plan for 28 years. I started in uh, 1973. So you graduated from Jericho and then you'd finished high school. So what were your expectations for employment when you finished school? Like, did you think you'd 
be able to find something or did you have some ideas? I was hoping to uh, possibly possibly become a dictaphone typist, but then um, I went to the employment counselor at uh, CNIB at the time. This was in the early 70s. And he was the one that basically told me Cater Plan hires blind people to work in um, the dry stands or concession stand kiosks or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> so would I be interested in, in working there? So I, I started training, and then uh, one of the um, employees that worked at Caterplan, he retired. So I was placed in this uh, stand at the uh, Workers' Compensation Board, and that's where I worked the whole time I was working at Caterplan. So I was working for Caterplan, but in the Workers' Compensation Board building. So was the was the stand or the kiosk itself like in the lobby or like where was it situated in the building? When it was in Vancouver, it was in the cafeteria, but the cafeteria was a different company. It was owned by a different company than Caterplan. Right. The reason I was asking was just because I wondered how many people would stream by, you know, your your kiosk or if it was a bit hidden away. Well, it was in the cafeteria. And then they moved out to Richmond, and it was placed outside the cafeteria. For people who aren't um, familiar with those kiosks, can you give the listeners a little bit of an idea of what types of items you sold? We sold cigarettes, candy, like candy, lifesavers, gum, chocolate bars, and... Did you have magazines or newspapers? or? Uh, well, later on in the stand in, in Richmond, they, they had newspapers. So you learned how to handle cash? We had a, a special uh, till. It wasn't a cash register. It was a till with sections in it for bills and change. Right. And then you put the cash uh, in the cash box at night. We had a cash box that you could lock up. And then in the early days, they would have somebody come and deposit the money for me. So I'd have to keep track of the sales I'd write it down in Braille, and then I'd give it to the the person that came to deposit uh-huh. the cash. Did you ever look for anything else while you were working, or were you happy to stay there? I did sort of look for something else after a while, but I guess I, I, I wasn't very confident in myself or my abilities. Um, I got laid off in uh, 2001. So what about some of your friends from high school, from Jericho? Did they get into similar types of employment? Well, some of them were employed. I had a couple of friends from Jericho that I can think of right off the top of my head that were uh, employed with Cater Plan. And um, I know um, I have another friend. She worked, um, well, for she did administrative work and that sort of thing. So she didn't work for Cater Plan. And then others I know that, unemployed as well. So it's kind of a mixture. So when you look back on your years with Caterplan, do you feel you sort of accepted that job because there just wasn't anything else available for you? Or do you think it was a good choice for you? Well, I guess it was a good starting point for me. Mm -hmm. And then I was kind of hoping in later years to find something else. But I, I never did, really, so, um, and I found it a bit discouraging. Recently, I've been starting to work with uh, or work for a company called Fable Tech Labs, and I really like the work, testing 
web websites and apps. Right. They actually hire people. All of us are disabled in one way or another. And that's work you can do from your own home? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I found, too, with searching for jobs, I, I felt a bit intimidated <laughs> because, you know, so many of the jobs had qualifications and experiences that I didn't have or didn't feel I had. Well, I'm glad you were able to find something that, you know, eventually that that does allow you to grow a little bit and expand on your skill. Yeah, yeah. And they they welcome people, you know, with disabilities to learn and to grow with the company and that kind of thing. So it's really good. Well, this should be an interesting series on employment as I get the impression that over the past, blind Canadians have been overly protected throughout their education, home life, and employment opportunities. And as a result today, I think we have in society a very low expectations of what blind people can do. Yeah, I would agree with you on that, David. My takeaway from the Jeffrey and Kathy interviews is that that sort of ugly head of colonialism has popped up again where blind people are sort of being told what they're capable of doing and and put in those positions but they are not careers they are are jobs that go nowhere so we're going to explore that some more in our next podcast we're going to have uh, Vic Pereira and uh, Marcia Yale and you David are going to be talking a little bit more about why uh, it's so difficult to get blind people employment in our country today like did did those early examples of workshops and things teach society that blind people are are meant to work into in sort of uh, sheltered and marginalized settings it's hard to know how history has impacted our, our present and the future but stay tuned for that our next episode on the continuing story of employment for blind Canadians. triple vision is made possible by the generous support of T-Base Communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio. Jacob Shemansky is the technical producer and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. And finally, Thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to Triple Vision with questions and comments, you can reach us at triplevision21 at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at triplevision21. We see a higher unemployment rate for disabled individuals. Take a deep dive into the issues impacting the disability community. Consent, when you're complexly disabled, goes a lot deeper. It's not just yes or no, like we're so used to understanding it. It's sighted people who are making assumptions about blindness, and that is what is informing the cultural perception of blindness. The Pulse. Download from your favorite podcasting platform and subscribe on YouTube.